Welcome to The Jam Packed, an independent podcast inspired by the campaigns led by the WI. In this episode, I talk to Emily Reynolds from the women's mental health charity WISH. WISH provides advocacy, emotional support and practical guidance to women in the mental health and criminal justice systems. WISH puts a huge emphasis on looking at the context women are in when they have mental health problems, not just on the symptoms that they have. By looking at mental health in this way, mental illness becomes a social issue rather than a thing that someone just has. Often when we talk about mental illness, we talk in terms of diagnoses and symptoms, but asking what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you shifts the conversation completely. Wish is the only national user-led charity of its kind in the UK. Emily first joined Wish as a service user and is now their campaigns and communications manager. We touched on a lot in our conversation, but I began by asking Emily what difference it makes to have a mental health charity that is led by the people who use it. So because WISH is user-led, that basically means not only that um, staff and trustees have lived experience of mental ill health or distress or however um, people want to define it, um, but also women themselves who are using the services are involved in sort of decision-making, campaigns, things like that. So I was on a steering group where we were sort of deciding what, what the kind of campaigning priority would be for WISH by sort of sharing our experiences Um, I think at the same time, there was also a survey that went out to lots and lots of different people um, to kind of work out what the priorities are, which is one thing that I really like about Wish, the fact that it is user-led and that, you know, it's not someone in an office dictating, this is what our next priority is. It's a sort of democratic process and it's the people actually using either Wish's services or mental health services or the criminal justice system. People who are actually involved and have contact with those things are the people setting the agenda basically I really noticed that when I was looking at your website um which I'll, I'll come back to in a minute but like, what difference does that make to wish to have it user-led I, I just think in general it's really important to have people involved who are actually the ones that are experiencing um maybe discrimination in mental health care um who are the ones using the services like who who is better than them to talk about what's wrong with them or what needs to change or what's good and what's bad. And I think also just talking about WISH specifically rather than sort of user-led groups generally, a lot of the women that we work with will have like, they'll have a history of domestic abuse or they'll have low self-esteem, they'll have experienced trauma, you know, maybe also trauma that's related to how they've been treated within services or, you know, they've experienced poverty, issues with housing, finances, things like that. And I, I think on a kind of societal level, like a wide level, are those women actually going to have their voices heard in any meaningful way? I think realistically, like we know from our work and, you know, other mental health charities and other women's organisations can also attest to this, that that those people don't have their voices heard in any meaningful way. So I think it's really important to make sure there are spaces where women or people with mental health problems or whatever group it is really are encouraged to use their voice. And it's obvious how them using their voice is actually making a difference. So yeah, it's something I feel really strongly about. I think we're seeing a little bit more of it now in bigger mental health charities and um, in mental health services, but I think a lot of them still have a long way to go in terms of actually being user-led. So uh, yeah, I feel really proud of the the stuff that WISH does for that reason. And what are some of the campaigns that you've, um, or that WISH has worked on? So we haven't actually done very much over the last year, as you can imagine, because of coronavirus. Um, and we've been scrabbling around changing our services and making sure that everything is, um, you know, working as well as it can be when we can't always do face to face. Yeah, I think I heard of coronavirus. So. Yeah, I was hoping not to have to mention it, but I don't. I think it's unavoidable at this point. Um, but yeah, it's a few minutes in, and, and it, you know, we, we avoided it for the first bit. But yeah, before that, we were we were campaigning around things like gender specific services for women and making sure that that was something that was available to women. Things like the use of me- like male staff in prisons when women are maybe traumatized. And there are certain kinds of things that it, it's maybe best that men, you know, aren't doing, like checking on women in the night and things like that. Mm. Obviously, if women are traumatized. You know, having a man come in in the middle of the night is not is, is going to be triggering. You know, we've worked with all sorts of different organizations. So we've done stuff on like legal aid cuts, um, PIP payments and disability payments and things like that. So, yeah, we're actually about to kind of relaunch with a new website and all of that kind of stuff. So looking forward to launching some campaigns in the near future. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll look out for that. 
when I um you know first thought to have you know this subject about women and mental health on the podcast I suppose I had in the back of my mind the idea to talk about um you know what kinds of conditions affect women how they manifest if they had anything in common um like how women can take care of themselves and so on it's quite a, a medicalized view mm. but when I found Wish though um your website I found something a lot more interesting that you were doing so your uh, website is remarkably different from websites like mind which is heavily symptom focused and about explaining the different illnesses and what they look like and feel like and the stereotypes people have and so on which is obviously really important and it's helped me um but it's clearly not wishes approach and I find what you're doing really exciting and in one of your pdf documents it explicitly says that you're trying to move from a medical model to a social model of care yeah Uh, could you tell us a bit more about those models yeah so I I guess this probably has its origins in the social model of disability which basically argues that it's not disabled people that have a disability it's sort of the barriers in society that are disabling them and I think when it comes to mental health that that's obviously the case um and yeah, I think looking at the social factors, like the societal factors, are is, I think it's just a really, really important thing in mental health. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit in a minute. Like you often see statistics around like women being more likely to be diagnosed with certain conditions and um, all of those kind of stats. But I think, yeah, I think it's quite difficult to give any definitive answer on that just because the social factors are so complex. So just to give a few examples of this sort of approach, rather than looking at, you know, a symptom, as you said, anxiety, say, as sort of an internal thing that has come from a chemical imbalance or something like that, we can look at like the circumstances of somebody's life. So stuff like women are more likely to be carers, whether that's for children or older family members, Um, And we know the link between caring and the kind of the responsibility of that can sometimes be very stressful. It can be socially isolating. Women are also more likely to be impacted by poverty. They're more likely to experience abuse. So domestic abuse or violence, um, like sexual assault. And and that can obviously have a really big impact as well. And then if you think about the, the impacts as well of things like racism, transphobia, classism, ableism, these also interact with like gendered issues, which means there's also a whole host of different ways that women can experience poor mental health. And I think like looking at those factors and addressing those factors as well as the individual factors, which are obviously also important, I think gives a much better understanding of why people have ended up at a moment in their life where maybe they're in crisis or they're really struggling with their mental health. If, if we're talking about an individual basis in terms of the services that we have and the women that we're actually working with, that is how we approach it, looking at someone's individual life story and all of these different social environmental factors that have led them up to that point. So really complex, but I think it's a good way of looking at it that that is sort of a lot more holistic and is, is a lot more, yeah, understanding of trauma as well. Yeah, this this definitely relates to um, a previous conversation I had with someone where we talked about how a lot of the stories, I, I guess, that gets told about mental health or, or the way it's framed, it, it's, it's often talked about in terms of the brain and chemicals and, you know, what's going on biologically, I guess, almost to you know, make it more physical, make it more real for people who don't have these conditions. But the story Wish is telling is the things that is going on around the person. And it's not necessarily, well, that their brain is part of it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they they exist in a world where many, many things are happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think in terms of mainstream mental health services, we almost So on one hand, we need to look at the individual on like a very, very individual basis. So not giving people generic care, looking like here is this person, what have they experienced? What have they gone through? What is their background? And like dealing with it in a really individual way, because not everybody is going to experience poverty the same way. It's not going to have the same outcomes. And, you know, people have different kinds of symptoms. People experience different kinds of distress. And I don't think generic services often do justice to that. But then on the other hand, I don't think we sort of in general address the societal issues that you know the institutional factors like poverty or sexual assault 
um, you know, these sort of political structures or structures of power. I think often in conversations around mental health in like sort of mainstream media, I think the discourse is quite depoliticized. But yeah, when you actually think about, like I say, these sort of structures of power in society, it's all obviously very intimately connected to mental health. So I think we do need to, you know, take into consideration people's life stories, but we also need to sort of sort of try and rebuild these structures that are kind of really oppressing, not just women, people with mental health problems in general, or, you know, whatever it is, whatever marginalized group, disabled people, black people, trans women, whatever it is, like we need to sort of look at those structures as well. So it's almost like everything is about mental health. Do you think... Um things like Black Lives Matter last year has impacted on these kinds of conversations? Yeah, I would I would really hope so. I think within the charity sector, there, there did seem to be a shift into wanting to think about these questions a bit more. And I think, for example, Mind, as quite a big mental health charity, have, have just sort of announced their new, their new focus. And one of them is like people from racialized communities. Um, one of them is young people. Um, so I, I think people are now maybe slightly more willing to have these conversations, which previously were maybe shied away from a bit because people didn't want to talk about the political side of mental health. But I think it's really important that we, I think it's also important, yeah, that we we connect these struggles up. So the focus of Black Lives Matter might not be mental health per se, but obviously people who are racialized experience sometimes really severe trauma from the things that they witness and it, or experience of the things that happen to them. And I think it's really important that we that we connect these struggles up and look at the ways that marginalized people are sort of oppressed in general, but also the impact that social factors have on people's mental health. I mean, on your, your website, it says, um, most advocacy services don't meet women's needs because they weren't made with women in mind. Um, mm. You know, who, who do you think they were made in mind for? Like what, um, what, is, what are they leaving out? I think probably like trauma, trauma informed work, I think is, I think that's probably not sort of built into these services. So do you think it would be helpful if I sort of gave a, little, a brief little description of what trauma informed is before I start yeah, yeah, that would be talking, talking about it? <laughs> um, so yeah, so sorry to anyone listening who already knows this and if I'm saying the obvious, but uh, yeah, sometimes this sort of jargon gets used and people don't know what it means, but it, it basically does what it says on the tin really. It basically means like an organization or a service or a professional or whatever it is that sort of number one understands how trauma can affect people and how people can respond to trauma and also means that the people involved in the service are actually responding to the impact of the trauma. So sort of in the care itself, looking at how to maybe minimize new stresses or think about how someone's past trauma might be triggered, which I think in the criminal justice system and also maybe in like secure units and things like that, I think women are often exposed to things that are triggering for them, which is not trauma informed because you're not able to heal from your trauma if it's constantly being triggered um, over and over again. And I think, yeah, at the heart of trauma informed work, are sort of values like safety and respect and empowerment and things like that. So one of the, I think one of the, the, the question that is often, or like the sentence is used to sort of explain this in short is in maybe traditional services, whether that's advocacy or mental health services or prison services, whatever it is, that people are asked what's wrong with you and it locates the problem in them and, yeah. and sort of something to be sorted out in them and it needs to be dealt with and that's that. But with a trauma-informed approach, you would ask what has happened to you and trying to look at, you know, the breadth of life experience as we've been talking about. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of things in mental health, as in the world in general, are designed for men anyway. Or maybe they're, even if they're not designed for men, they're so generic as to be sort of useless because people need specific things to help them. And you, you can't really get that with a generic service. But what you said about, um, you know, the, the what's wrong with you really hits hard for me. Cause, mm. um, even um, with physical conditions, um, like what I have, um, I, I remember, particularly during my teens, you know, when people would ask what's wrong with you or um, even are you getting better? I felt like I had to get better as a person yeah. and then, you know, like physically I would change. And um, yeah, like put, putting the problem with the patient it 
it has such such an effect on on your relationship with healing and the medical system and so on and but even the word patient comes from you know the word to be passive Mm. that's what the word patient means so yeah could you tell me a bit more about in wish how you try and get people to go from passive patients to be more active participants yeah well, I think that that's at the heart of what advocate or what the advocacy that we do is, is sort of trying to, it's, a, it's, it's a, I guess, about the empowerment value that I just mentioned, trying to empower people to use their vote, to use their voice and to be able to, to do that. So making sure that people are actually involved in their care. And it, it sounds like a really, really simple thing. And, and maybe if there are people who were listening, who have never had any contact with mental health service would be like is that not that's should be part of the course that people should be actually involved in the care they're getting but often it's just not the case that you something's like done to, to you and you don't actually you can't actually participate in that at all you can't contribute to it at all so making sure that you can work with people and listen to what it is that they want and then sort of give that to them as much as you possibly can you know, I think some of it just comes down to really, really basic or should be basic things like actually listening to what someone has to say. So just in my experience of mental health services is often you'll go and try and talk about something that's affecting you and they'll either dismiss it or sometimes you get the notes back from the session and you read it and you're like, this is alien to me. Like, this is not what I said. This is not what I meant. I thought that this person had understood what I was saying. And there's just something completely different there that like you're reading it you think this 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 isn't me this is somebody else you know and over time that really like really really wears you down it really wears you down and like if you're somebody like we were just talking about who in the rest of their life also isn't being listened to whether that's by housing services or benefit services or you know society at large is not interested in what you have to say and doesn't give you a platform to say it then obviously you're, you're, you're going to feel completely disempowered so I think what we want to do is try and give women some of that power back by sort of involving them in campaigning so you can see sort of meaningful change on a wider scale but also making sure that women are you know involved actively in their own care I, I personally feel that that's how all mental health services should work but unfortunately like you say it's it's not um at the moment and, and the waiting times make such a big difference oh, to that feeling yeah. of passivity and things being out of control and when you finally talk to someone and you have no idea if they're gonna understand you or not yeah yeah so I I first had like some form of mental health issue when I was like 14 which is like 15 years ago now and I'm still nervous about going to the GP you know I, I, I feel like I need to go to the GP at some point soon because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling quite anxious at the moment and I, I'm just like nervous about going because you have no idea whether they are going to like dismiss you talk down to you whether they're going to be nice whether they're gonna you, you just it's a completely luck of the draw you know and I'm someone who like I'm able to advocate for myself um you know I've got like a middle class accent and white um you know I still really really struggle which is just I've, I've known nurses like you know people who are part of that system still have these feelings and problems about mm-hmm. going to their GP um, even though they they work within the system they know the system but they still have to wait and they still have this build-up and they still get stumped yeah yeah I think there's a lot of internalized stigma as well when you come up against this over and over again I think what kind of came to me when you were talking then about that question what's wrong with you is that I think if you're asked that enough times you start thinking about yourself Um, and I think that's probably also the case for people who work within health services or mental health services even and they try and seek help is that there's a lot of internalized stigma about not only oh what's wrong with me like why am I you know why am I like this why can't I get better whatever better looks like but it's Mm -hmm. sort of like these yeah the the stick you beat yourself with at least in my experience and I think I think a lot of the passivity kind of uh, because there there is a lack of money and a lack of services it does benefit um the system for patients to sort of turn it on themselves and think Mm. you know the problem is with me and in me rather than trying to change circumstances so that the NHS is not really well I mean it did make social change but there's only so much social change that the NHS is involved with Um, yeah so healthcare has to go beyond that yeah I I often think this when I have conversations about 
sort of things like funding for mental health care. I obviously would love there to be more funding for mental health care for the sake of everybody. But yeah, I think you're right that actually some of it isn't just down to funding and some of it is to do with the culture of how people with mental health issues are treated. And that's going to probably, some of that is to do with funding because if you're a GP and you have to see hundreds of people a day and you're really, really busy, then you're probably, your empathy is probably going to be more limited than if you had time to actually sit down and talk to somebody properly. Yeah. Sometimes you go, you just in and out, you know, they have to see so many people every day. So I'm sympathetic to that, but yeah, I think it, I think it requires more than just funding, and I think there need does need to be a culture change in the way that we treat vulnerable people in general. So going back to trauma, you know, you place quite a big an emphasis on that. Do you think that uh, women's mental health problems are more trauma based than men's are? Yeah, it's quite a difficult question, really, isn't it? I think I've got some stats somewhere here. I've got some notes here about. The, um, the differences in conditions yeah, um, in yeah. men and women. But, you know, I was think, I was looking them up and writing them down and stuff. But I think, actually, they're sort of a bit misleading because the differences in, you know, what does it mean when you say more women experience anxiety than men? Because women are more likely to have received treatment. Men are less likely to seek help. Um, and often when they do seek help, men also aren't listened to because of these like ideologies around gender like men are like this and women are like this and men should behave like this and women should behave like this which is why I feel like men are really really harmed and men's mental health is like really harmed by these ideas around gender sorry I, I feel like I've gone off on a tangent there I can't remember what your actual question was but <laughs> um it was about trauma and um I, I guess I was trying to be a bit um provocative in a way by, mm-hmm. by asking like you know are, are women more traumatized than men but I guess it could be you know do we experience different kinds of trauma or do we respond differently and obviously at the moment there's a there's a lot of talk about how men you know that there's a worrying weight rates of male suicide for example mm. um so we're not saying you know that men don't have mental health problems and women do or that women's mental health problems are worse but they are different yeah yeah no I I mean we do definitely know that there are certain things that cause trauma that women experience more so for example sexual assault or rape and things like that domestic violence obviously women are more likely to experience that but yeah I think you're right that actually it's often more about how it's expressed than it is about the you know how many people experience it so I think one of the interesting things is that men are far more likely to have drug and alcohol use issues, which I think probably relates to the fact that men often don't talk about it and they're sort of subsuming their, their, you know, channeling those problems into drug and alcohol use rather than, you know, maybe talking about them in the way that that women would. But yeah, that there are certainly women are obviously more likely to be assaulted and things like that. And I think that that's a massive cause of trauma but yeah it's interesting how I think sometimes it's weaponized this conversation I think particularly from just in my experience I've, I've come across online some sort of like men's rights activists who are like really misogynistic who who really don't don't like women at all and this conversation is often used as a to to put women down or to say you know men's problems are so much worse I think it's yeah it's important that we sort of acknowledge that men and women experience mental health issues differently but that doesn't mean one is worse than another or that one is less deserving of attention or anything like that and I I think that's why gender specific services are really important both for men and women and I think it's it's good that we're now talking about men's mental health a bit more than we used to. Hypothetically and I'm I'm talking very hypothetically here I don't think you could even measure this but hypothetically let's say men's mental health was definitely um, proven beyond all doubt to be worse than women's that doesn't mean that there's not a need for what you do exactly yeah exactly so um I think it's yeah I think it's important I think yeah men and men and women's organizations should definitely work together and look at this you know in detail like the different the different things that people need in services because you know something that we provide for women as a model might just not suit men at all so yeah, I think I think looking at that is, is really, really important. One, one of the things that kept coming up on your website, actually, which I was really intrigued by, I hadn't really seen it come up on any other mental health website, was about prisons and mm. the work you do in prisons. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we um, provide advocacy in prisons and we also, our community link project, we work with women who have come from prison or hospital and sort of help them sort of resettle into the community. And yeah, I think that there's, there's, there's a really, really big link between men, women with mental health needs and the criminal justice system. Um, and I know um, someone asked a question about that on, on the Facebook as well, who was really interested in that and sort of asking about how to support women. If, if you look at some of the stats around the things that women go to prison for, it's quite shocking. Sentences for women on the whole are much, much shorter. So I think it was 2019 or a few years ago, the average sentence for a woman was 11 months, which is not very long at all. And I, I think you have to ask the question, did, did, did someone really need to go to prison for 11 months? Obviously it disrupts their life. If they've got children, it disrupts their life and then still sort of starts a cycle there of maybe trauma or, or poor mental health you know you be completely uprooted from your social support networks right prison I think everyone knows is not a trauma-informed environment like it's it's a quite triggering and like can be really really difficult place for women to be obviously when you come out of prison your job prospects are affected you might have nowhere to live and so I think yeah it, the work we do in prison is, again is like really linked to mental health because women are more likely to go to prison if they have mental health problems and also prison is not, you know, might be a very traumatizing place to be and might worsen mental health problems as well. So, yeah, I think one of the things that always really one of the stats, I think, always sort of shows sort of underlines this argument about whether we should be sending lots of women to prison for the things that we're sending them to prison for is that so many women are sent to prison for not paying their TV license, which there are lots of charities have done sort of campaigns around this, because if you can't afford to pay your TV license, you shouldn't be sent to prison for it, I believe anyway. So I, I think we need to rethink the criminal justice system as well, because women who need help with their mental health should not be going to prison fundamentally. And there should be support for women earlier to sort of stop them from reaching that point as well. And I think in general, more widely, I think there is a lot of sort of negative discourse around people who go to prison, a lot of stigma, a lot of sort of discriminatory beliefs and language about the sort of person that goes to prison I think we also need to think about that as well just more generally mm. yeah the the more I've learned about this the, the more I, I think how we as a society have to think about what prisons are for mm. um I, I did um uh, contributed a little bit to a project that our uh, justice museum here in Nottingham uh, was was doing last year well, no not last year before corona about mm -hmm. um women in um prison and uh they provided us like with their lists of statistics and information about women women in prison and we had to embroider them and um you know they would have been hung up for a display and I I helped do like three or four of them and just reading them was just really shocking because of how the kinds of things women go to prison for compared to the things men go to prison for yeah. are remarkably different so men are far more likely to go to prison for violent crimes uh, compared to women who mostly go to prison for non-violent crimes and the effect that has on their families so women when they go to prison their children tend to end up in care whereas yeah. When men go to prison, um, generally their family will continue to look after the children. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a massive difference, and I think there's there's a statistic that's around. It's about 48, 49 percent of women have also committed a crime to support somebody else's drug use. So yeah, yeah like in often cases it will be a, a man, a partner, and it, yeah, it's more than half of women who go to prison have have been abused at some point, domestic violence, sexual assault, things like that. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to look at those figures and think it's the best way we can like help these women by sending them to prison. And and are they a victim yeah. of someone else rather than a perpetrator of exactly. a crime? Yeah, especially something like, you know, not paying a TV license. I can't think of, you know, a more victimless crime than that. You know, it does not serve anybody at all in society, let alone the women themselves to send someone to prison. Or their children, you know. Yeah, if, if they're, exactly. if, can you imagine if your mum went you know, away because she didn't pay the TV license. And because there, there aren't as many women's prisons compared to men's, she could, yeah. she she will usually go to a different city or a different part of the country. Yeah. Um, so she's gone completely. 
yeah and yeah and then and then you know that starts the cycle for them as well which is just yeah we should be sort of protecting these women and helping them and supporting them and not you know stigmatizing them or punishing them yes that yeah it is a society wide subject you know when you Mm. really get into because you say mental health and you kind of I I think the word health kind of trips you up a little bit it becomes medicalized and about self-care or you know like looking out for signs and symptoms and so on yeah whereas this is a lot more about looking out for each other and building relationships yeah I I think that's one of the reasons I really like sort of the user-led ethos is that it's 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 just about like solidarity. Like obviously we are a charity, but we, you know, we're offering solidarity rather than charity. It's like women, the women that we work with are are equals rather than, you know, a, a service user or someone that is like done to. And yeah, it is about community um, and looking after each other. And I think that really ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of thinking about other groups that face sort of discrimination or sort of these pressures in society that might be really different to the ones that women face obviously what there's overlap but you know they might be might be really different but actually we're all subject to the same marginalization and that we should really be sort of coming together and and thinking about how to change it I do think there are parallels for example about how people felt about the Black Lives Matter protests and the Sarah Everard protests Mm. um and you know going back to my first question to you about um the difference you know wish being user-led makes um I think it it is that equality where if you were led by experts you'd have you'd have to think okay which experts you know lawyers or doctors whereas if it's patients the things that you go through like transcend those uh, categories yeah yeah exactly um and I, yeah I think you know experts often have loads of institutional power and often, obviously, are more likely to have got to that point because of various sort of identity-based characteristics that they have as well. Whereas I think, you know, if you're working bottom-up rather than top-down, it's just way more democratic. You get a way more diverse range of experiences. And, I mean, when you're actually doing user-led work, sometimes that makes it far more difficult because there's not a consensus because everybody has their own opinion or experience or take on the thing. But I think that's that's much better sort of talking through those things and like actually acknowledging the diversity of people's experiences rather than just dictating what they should what what they should mean to people as well. So if I could push you to answer like the very tricky question like why does sex matter when it comes to mental health? Women experience a very unique set of life experiences they're more likely to like I said to be carers to experience poverty um, and things like that so I think it's important to take them into consideration basically you know trans women also experience lots of the same but also some some kind of different marginalizations that can affect their mental health um, and also have the the added sort of transphobia of mental health care systems as well so I think yeah all, all of those things I think need to be looked at in a in a kind of gender specific way I, I guess it's just about acknowledging the the unique set of circumstances that women face really yeah. I, I, w- I went to the um, NFWI annual meeting on Tuesday it's just on zoom and usually it's like held in London and it's a big fan- yeah. fancy thing uh, which I never would have been able to go to if it hadn't been for corona so thanks corona um, it's quite nice actually <laughs> being able to do stuff I have found that that you know we yeah I've been able to go to stuff that I never would have been able to go to normally so yeah it's quite good in lots of ways it shut down a lot but opened up a lot as well but a lot of the speakers there spoke about how women have really struggled even more because of like the, the burden of care that corona has kind of um revealed or emphasized um and I think it was Baroness Hayes who she said um uh women do live different lives uh, Mm. to men and uh, you know this often these differences are because of how women are perceived but also she's I think the phrase she used like uh, women like in her opinion like women uh seem to be held back uh nowadays because of caring roles over gender so it's the burden of care as opposed to the sexist stereotypes people have so there's that still that expectation that women will 
look after children and older people and so on. So people might not be conscious of thinking ne negative things about women, but the role that they're in, uh, the yeah. caring role still has a, a really big effect. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really big thing and can't really be underestimated that, you know, this 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 does tend to fall on women. And again, that's linked to all sorts of other things, like, for example, in later life, you know, if you've been caring for somebody, whether it's a child or your parents or whoever it is, you're less likely to have had full time work. You know, you're going to have to rely on a state pension and not have any kind of savings of your own. And then that can obviously push you into poverty, which comes with its own stresses and anxieties and all of this kind of stuff, social isolation. So it, it's all linked. And yeah, I think I think we have definitely come quite far. I'm just thinking about when I was growing up and would call myself a feminist and I was roundly mocked at school for saying <laughs> it. Whereas now I think it's actually quite cool to say you're a feminist. Um, so maybe that's just the people I know. Um, but I, I think a lot of these roles are still really, really present. Um, well, um, talked for quite a while, but we do have a list of questions that people sent in. We've got 15 questions. I don't yeah. know if we get through all of them. Yeah, um, shall I pick out some of the the key the key questions that I think we've not covered? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just looking through them now. Um, yeah, there was a question um, from Nikki about self-esteem so talking about mm. how women don't know their worth and I think yeah that that sort of sort of popped out at me because it's a it's sort of a massive thing that we sort of a lot of the women that we work with do have really really low self-esteem which and what is self-esteem oh that's too difficult <laughs> I don't know um but you know a sense of worth or like a sense that anything you have to say is worth listening to and I think that that does come from obviously all the really, really serious things we've talked about today, like poverty or abuse. But I think in general, there is still a huge amount of pressure on women to like be or look a certain way. And I think that can really affect your self-esteem. Mm. Um, um, if you're someone who, <clears throat> excuse me, um, sorry, I've got, I've got hay fever. So I have, uh, I, I, I share your pain. <laughs> My um, eyes are burning. I'm trying yeah. to ignore it. That's, that's, that's where I'm at as well. So sorry to everyone for my coughing, but yeah. Um, if you're in touch with mental health services and you know, you're not being listened to or taken seriously, then you're obviously not going to be confident enough to like use your voice or be, be able to advocate for yourself at all. So I think, yeah, I think self-esteem is a really big issue across sort of society in general, but if we're talking about women in contact with mental health services, it's it's massive yeah and the, the idea of self-esteem it goes back to the the location of things being in the self as well um yeah yeah, I, yeah. so yeah, there's, I, there's esteem like how esteemed are you mm. but also your self-esteem how you esteem yourself and the emphasis is how much esteem you have of yourself versus how how you are picking up the esteem that society has for either you or people like you again it's like you rather than the situation you're in yeah I think I just talking from a personal level now that I think I have often felt I've like beat myself up for not having enough self-esteem because I feel like it's something that I should do something about and that it's like located in me when actually if I think about the reasons that why I might have low self-esteem actually it's like mostly things that have been done to me or happened to me rather than like it's not a flaw that I like I have low self-esteem but I think mm -hmm. it's often positioned in such a way that it's like you know you can just improve your just improve your self-esteem you know it may, maybe a bit of a flippant example but in around discourses around dating people are often told like oh you need to like boost your self-esteem before you go dating because like if you if you don't love yourself then you're not going to find a healthy relationship or whatever and it's like why are you like man or woman like why are you putting the the, the burden of this on the person who has trouble liking themselves like it's it's really presented as like this individualistic thing when actually we live in a society where like men and women are forced to play like particular roles then like you know people are obviously not going to like themselves if they don't live up to that mm. yeah self-esteem can be thought of as a barometer of you know your interactions yeah Okay, I'm going to go on to the next question so that we have time to do more. Yeah, there was something about older women, which we have just sort of touched on. But yeah, Nicola mentioned that, you know, women are being pushed into poverty due to pension changes in the pandemic. And yeah, I, I saw a story the other day that said, I think it was something like 40% of women, their only income, women over the age of 55, their only income is the state pension. And there are lots of women, it, which is double the, the rate for men. So women are really, really struggling. 
And I think as a society, we're not very good at listening to older women or considering them to be people. Just yeah. from speaking to my friends who are older, um, there's a thing. I think there's a certain point, a cutoff point, where women just get completely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a massive issue as well. And I actually think in general, just in terms of mental health, that we don't talk enough about the mental health of older people. You know, if if you have a chronic long-term condition, that's not just going to go away for lots of people when they reach an older age. But I think think we rightly focus a lot on young people's mental health and the certain pressures that young people face, but older people also struggle with their mental health in both mild and serious ways. Um, And I think we should sort of pay a bit more attention to that in general yeah and I think young people they do worry about becoming older and part of that worry is because we know that we don't care as much about older people and one of the really good things about the Women's Institute so our LWI in particular there's a real mix of ages so I'm not the youngest person and yeah we've got people from all from across generations and it's just really nice to have that that mix yeah um I I I think there should be more of that in society more more mixing of ages yeah no I completely agree with that I was I was reading um something the other day about um these schools that they put in the grounds of care homes for elderly people and just how part of the school like curriculum is like going in and learning from the older people and obviously that ben- that really benefits like both groups like it- it's lovely for older people to be around children and-, and vice versa so I mean that that's just one example but yeah I think you're right I completely need to bridge that divide a bit more which I think would also help with sort of isolation as well because older people we know are, are, can be quite lonely but younger people as well are often am- amongst the groups that are the most lonely Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that would be a nice a nice way of thinking about social isolation as well. I think young people uh, worry about, and maybe I'm just project, projecting my own like pro- problems, but worry about you know time running out and not doing things at certain times. But when you have older friends, um, particularly much older friends, you see that they continue to do things. There aren't as many deadlines as perhaps you might have thought. Um, yeah. there, there was one that really stood out to me actually. Um, which I thought was quite good. Um, was, uh, she's talking about, uh, okay, so it's Jan is talking about changing the paradigm with which uh, women's mental health is assessed. And she says, um, words like emotional and sensitive are seen in a derogatory light. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is almost like misogyny in language, really, that these words that are often attributed to women are then sort of seen as demeaning or you know that they shouldn't you know they, they describe something negative and I think sometimes these the, the way that these are used are like one step away from calling women hysterical when actually you know the word emotional shouldn't be used in that way at all but you, you do hear that like particularly when women are diagnosed with things like borderline personality disorder the word emotional uses like in a sort of a weaponized way that it, it's used to diminish someone's experience or to sort of almost to undermine it and say that it's sort of facile that it's like a superficial reaction that someone's over you know if you're saying someone's over emotional you're sort of saying they're overreacting Mm. again that they're hysterical so yeah I I think that's that's right really I think that's why we would push for something that was more gender specific that was more understanding of like women's needs I mean that wasn't sexist would be would be good but yeah no I, I completely agree with that that we need to think about the way that these things are assessed yeah you could you could do a whole um episode on what Uh, sensitivity is and you know how that is perceived by society Uh, yeah there's um there's a really great zine that I like called dear GP where people sort of um make fun of the the doctor's letters and medical notes that they've had and like that that's it's really funny actually and like really sends up some of the the language that is used in these assessments some of which isn't gendered but it's just sort of ridiculous that you're always described as like well-kempt or (laughs) unkempt and it's just like, just is this hugely relevant? Probably not, but um, they're always quite fun. Yeah, so, I had I had a um, mental health assessment. Um, well, it was earlier this year actually, and the person said uh, it was done over webcam, and he said, well, um, he he lent in like this, and he said, well, you seem like you've washed your hair and your outfit's quite nice, and he wrote. <laughs> 
Well, I wouldn't be getting any, I wouldn't be getting any positive notes today because I'm not, I don't, I don't think I look particularly well-kempt. So I know, I thought, what does that now. mean? Like, you haven't seen me from the waist down. From the waist down, it's all pajamas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's something that definitely needs to be taken out of the, like, out of the, you know, unless you're, you're turning up and, like, you're obviously not able to look after yourself or whatever but I don't think it's really necessary you know they've mentioned oh like she has colored hair or something it's like this is really not relevant now that you're saying what color my hair is mm-hmm. yes like it's it's a sign it's what it's one of the signs they don't list on any criteria but they yeah, exactly. <laughs> um I thought it might be nice to finish on a question about um what would you say to someone who's struggling with their mental health because I think that's mm. a question that a lot of people have really so yeah, I think I was thinking about this when I, I got the question. I think when we know someone who's suffering in any way, whether they're just having a crap day or they've got they're having a mental health crisis or they're grieving or something like that, I think we often worry about saying the right thing and that we have to say the right thing. And just in my experience, that can stop you from saying anything at all um, because we're worried like, oh, I don't want to put my foot in it. I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I also do some work in suicide prevention and that is something that comes up a lot in that sort of um, area that people are really, really worried about saying the wrong thing or they're worried that if they directly ask, um, are you feeling suicidal, that it will sort of make someone more likely to do it or things like that. So people don't end up saying anything that's not true just for the record it, it's not at all more you know someone's not more likely to take their life if you if you ask them directly so I, I think the thing I would want to impress in terms of saying the right thing is just you don't I don't think you need to worry about saying the wrong thing if all you need to really do is just ask how someone is just like give them the space to talk to you honestly and make sure that they know that you're going to listen to them you're not going to judge them and like I think one really important thing if you go into a conversation and you want to ask someone about their mental health go in with the attitude that you don't need to and probably shouldn't give them advice you shouldn't tell them what to do you just need to be there to listen to them obviously if they ask you for advice or they say what do you think I should do then obviously feel free to do that but um, I, I really think just asking directly like what can I do to support you or like what do you need from me or something like that and then sort of just follow their lead, I think would be the sort of key things I would say to that. But I think, you know, if you want to do something really practical as well, maybe doing some research and having some services that you might be able to signpost to would be really useful. So I think on like the mental health first aid website or the mind website and places like that, there are like a list of services that you can signpost to so I think having that might make you feel more confident going into the conversation but I really really think that people just need to say like what do you need or like what's going on and that that's actually enough to start a conversation and from there you can sort of work out what it is that the person needs from you rather than like thinking which I still do when I have a friend who's like having some sort of crisis or having like really difficult time with their mental health part of me still wants to go like all right what can I do what should I say like how do I sort this but you you can't you can't do that for somebody else and you just have to listen to them and take their lead really yeah and following up that's really important like I I was reading the testimonials on the wish website and so many of them were about how they built relationships over time and just that repeated contact makes makes difference so you you don't have to have like the one big conversation yeah um, and then you've done it it you you might not even have to like you know really deeply talk about someone's mental health problems you just have to turn up and involve them in things yeah yeah and just treating someone like normally as normally as you can if if that's possible and they're not in sort of really really serious crisis like just being just being normal is really nice I think also being prepared to offer some practical support has also been something that has really helped me that sometimes you when you're really struggling knowing that your friend will like maybe book an appointment for you or something just making sure that you're there they know that you're there for emotional support but also as much practical support as you're comfortable or you're able to provide I think that's really really helpful because obviously knowing someone's there to listen to you is great but you know at some points when I've just needed someone to help me make an appointment or to go to the doctors with me that's like the best thing that someone could possibly have done in that moment so I think they might not seem like massive 
gestures or anything but like you say I think it's about like the consistency and knowing someone's there and they're not going away and that they're just gonna stick by you I think that's really important yeah yeah these these things they make so much difference you know when you feel alone and no one's looking out for you if someone pops up and they just do like a couple of things it can really change how how you feel about your day or your week yeah exactly yeah it's just like getting a text from someone like checking in on you it's it just makes you feel better doesn't it I think that goes like even when you're not having a mental health crisis so it's doubly so when you are yeah yeah well is there anything that we didn't talk about that you thought oh I I really wanted to say this or that oh I don't think so I think we covered we covered loads of ground actually yeah it was a really good conversation yeah no I always love talking about mental health it's my little hobby horse so oh good well (laughs) I'll I'll be badgering you in the future to get you back (laughs) please do please do I really enjoyed that conversation with Emily. The way Wish goes beyond individuals and looks at society is really interesting and opens up so much more potential than most conversations I think currently do. It's important to know about symptoms, but mental health is more than a diagnosis. Societies can support mental health or contribute to distress or trauma. Personally, I am a fan of labels. The label of autism and ADHD have helped me hugely, but we need to make sure that the conversation doesn't end there. It doesn't just end at lists of symptoms or a name for a condition. Looking at society opens up the conversation to include all kinds of issues like poverty and sexism, but also the way we live in relation to these things. Let me know what you think. What societal issues do you think affect mental health? Maybe you disagree with some of the things that we've talked about. You can get in touch through Twitter. I'm at the Jam Packed Pod or www.thejampackedpod.com. In the next episode, we'll be talking to Emma Reavy, the CEO of the Trussell Trust, about poverty in the UK. Here is a clip from that conversation, and I'll see you next time. When we think about food banks, that can cause us to think, oh, this will never be solved. There's always been food banks. We're always going to need food banks. And yet, 10 years ago, food banks in our network distributed just 60,000 emergency food parcels, whereas last year, 2.5 million. So actually, it's a very new phenomenon, this mass distribution of food aid on this scale where that number of people are having to access emergency food to get by. Uh, and, and therefore, something has changed in this last 10 years. And how do we change that back? Or how do we identify what's gone wrong and undo that? Because we don't need to be in a situation 